You are listening to Get Real Podcast. By the time we got to Woodstock, we were half a million strong and everywhere. There was song and celebration. And I dreamed I saw the bombers riding shotgun in the sky and turning in to butterflies. Generational test. Okay. Okay. Just go with me here. All right. Scooby Dooby Doo, where are you? We've got uh, some work to do now. So you were born in 1972. 72. Okay. Good year for for podcasters. That's right. And uh, I was born in 71. And growing up, we watched this zany cartoon. Scooby-Doo. Yes. And a lot of people may not notice, but they were on their way to somewhere, right? They They were. were. The name of the van? The Mystery Machine. The Mystery Machine. So these young people, Saturday morning cartoons in the mid-70s, early 70s, we grew up watching these kids in their crazy dog solve all these crimes, and we would have had a successful podcast if it wasn't for those meddling kids kids. and that dog, right? (laughs) Um, so there was a whole lot of things that happened socially around something. They were on their way to a place called Woodstock and a thing called Woodstock. Everybody around the world, we have listeners in all sorts of different countries and states of the United States. Uh, probably no one has not heard of Woodstock or been some way influenced by it, right? We've all been influenced by it. We have. All of us. Musically and so forth. And you and I last week, we were talking a lot about perceptions, a lot about mm-hmm. spirituality, and the the subject of the psychedelic yes. kept coming up over yep. and over and over again. And I, I wanted to talk a little bit about that just as far as what is psychedelic. I looked up, did, did you look up the definition? I did, and I've got it right here. Hit me with what you got, Okay, man. all right. So I just Googled psychedelic of or noting a mental state characterized by a profound sense of intensified sensory perception sometimes accompanied by severe perceptual distortion and hallucinations okay and by extreme feelings of either euphoria or despair interesting very interesting very interesting and just like always we go into taboo areas where god can speak through Rock and rollers, heavy metal people. God speaks through whomever He desires. That's correct, and that can be that can make people a little nervous. Can or did or is God speaking through the psychedelic, Glenn? Absolutely. Normally, I think of drugs when you hear psychedelic music. It's like you think of purple, violet, squish, hallucinations of, of and that sort of music. But there is something to be said for perception. There is, and I believe that the drug aspect of it is a perversion of what God intends for us to learn through the psychedelic. And when we were talking to Jack 
from S91, we were talking about psychedelic, we were talking about the kaleidoscope of connecting with the world that's around you, coming outside of just who you are, your world, and connecting with other parts of the world in, in this giant kaleidoscope. Kaleidoscope's a great word because that really captures what we're talking about. If you think about it, you don't have to take a drug to trip on something, no. okay? And what it is to me, it, like it said, it's revealing or sensing things that were already around you, mm -hmm. but differently. We brought up synesthesia yes. before. Uh -huh. There are people that naturally have a little bit of cross wiring. They hear music and see colors. Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix was that way. Billy yeah. Joel, mm -hmm. okay? Um, there's a lot of different artists that are that way. And there's people that actually paint paintings of famous songs. So yes. they will see colors when they're listening to Jimi Hendrix. And I don't think it's uniform in the sense that two different people that have synesthesia would see the same thing. I think it's individual and developmental. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Like if you hear a C chord and you see blue, well, Jimi Hendrix may have seen orange. Okay. So it, I didn't see that it was uniform in the sense of the way it is. That would be cool. Would but be you cool. can actually buy paintings from synesthetes. And they sit there, they'll listen to Etta James, and they'll paint exactly what they see. And they're very beautiful. So here's the deal. Roy G. Biv, right? The colors mm -hmm. of the rainbow. We see the colors of the rainbow. And then there's certain people that can't see very far into that spectrum. Animals see a whole lot more of that spectrum. Um, blind people don't see anything in that spectrum. But there is, all those colors are still there. All those frequencies, gamma, infrared, all the different ones that even do the human body harm, they're part of God's, uh, what's the thing that the artists use? They put all palette. the paint. The it's part of God's palette. <laughs> so in the universe, when he's looking around, he doesn't see what our limited perceptions see. So a life or death experience, if you were out at sea on a life raft or hanging on to a piece of wreckage um, for a week and then you get res rescued, there's no doubt that the things that are all around you are going to be intensified. Your perception, if you were in combat in Iraq or Afghanistan and you come back, life itself is going to take on a different feel at the birth of a baby. So there's so many things that can be mind altering that aren't just drugs. Or surviving a brain tumor. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say that. Like you, you and I are, don't have a history of drug usage. We don't use drugs now. Okay. And we're not saying that self-righteously. We just didn't grow up in that circle. No. Um, and so there's a lot of different things that I can appreciate about the psychedelic movement that are outside of just what's notorious. People getting zonked out of their mind, people running around with no clothes on, flapping their wings like a bird, doing whatever they did, right? So That's what the media and the world wants you to focus on. Exactly. So anyway, controversial as it is. But look, we actually have a guest today, Glennard. Would you like to introduce our guest? We have a guest that was at Woodstock. He's been a friend of ours for many years. His name is Kevin, Kevin Reardon. He was there. Kevin and I, we've even gone to see, we went to go see Graham Worley together. Remember that back Correct. a few years ago? That's a local musician. Local He's musician, awesome. Awesome musician. We went and we had <gasps> Baptists, hold on to your seats. Lutherans, you're going to love this. We had some beers <laughs> while we went to go see <laughs> Graham Worley. Oh, my story. <laughs> they did it again. Uh, but Kevin was there. At Woodstock, and before we started the show today, Kevin reminded me that this is going to be the 50th anniversary of Woodstock this August. 50 years ago. Wow, so this is timely. Very timely. Well, one of the things that I appreciate about today's show, and I'd like to kick it off in a specific way, is generationally. We were talking, all three of us have talked a little bit about the book Pendulum and about generations and about 
how it oscillates between a sense of civic focus and individual focus. And over 40-year generations, it goes back and forth. Fascinating read. Look up the book Pendulum. But today, we want to hear from three different generations. Kevin, we were both born just right after Woodstock. I was born in 71. That was two years. Woodstock occurred in 1969. Am I Mm -hmm. correct? Okay. I was born in 71. You were born in 72. Mm -hmm. And we have on the line a couple of people that were not born, that were born more in 99 and 2001. We've got a couple of guests that love my kids two or really all three of them but the two that are on the line with us they know more about Woodstock than I do they know almost every artist they were like oh ask Kevin this ask Kevin this so Kevin was there Kevin lived it Kevin welcome to the get real podcast thank you we're gonna put my daughters on real quick to hit it off and I want to hear they're burning with questions about what you did and who you saw and then we'll get um because they have to go to church like good kids here in a few, <laughs> a few minutes. So um, we're holding them up. So, uh, hey, girls, can you hear us? Welcome to the Get Real Podcast. Yay. All right, girls, don't be shy. Um, you're only going to be heard around the world. There's no pressure at all. But uh, when you think of Woodstock, what do you think, girls? Peace, love, and music. Peace, love, and music. And go ahead, ask Kevin like who he saw. Y'all were chomping at the bit with 100 questions, so go for it. Yeah. I think one of our biggest questions is, is who was the most inspiring performance? Like, what was the best performance that you saw? The best performance I actually saw was at the beginning. The trip from Boston to Bethel was um, very lively and unusual as we got closer to the the, the venues, uh, which was a large field, bowl-shaped field out in the middle of uh, upstate New York. As we got closer to that venue, we began to run into um, vans, hippie bans, buses, retrofitted for um, for all kinds of party and live shows within the van. We actually, uh, when we pulled up there and arrived the first morning, uh, we went down to the to the uh, stream to, to to get a get ourselves cleaned up and washed up. And one of the vans was wide open and had a wood stove in it. It was cooking up wood stove. They were in there jamming with uh, some guitars and a flute, and we sat in there on their um, uh, on their carpet inside the van, and just we we met some some interesting people. Well, one who uh, who was named Jimmy the Jersey Jew, that's what he called himself. <laughs> and and Jimmy says, "Come on in, go sit down. Come on, have some fun. We're getting ready for the show." The most interesting was the very beginning. Because the very beginning, you were awestruck by the fact that as you approached, you saw thousands upon thousands of people coming in to this. And everybody who was coming into this place was genuinely referring to each other as brother and sister, not like a churchy fashion, but as, hey, you must be my brother because you're here at this event with me. Mm-hmm. And, and the very first performer, you have to, you have to understand this is a, a venue where the stage is probably 100 feet wide by 75 feet deep. And on the left of the stage is a makeshift helicopter landing area where the groups could fly in and out to perform. Uh, next to the stage was this probably a 75-foot scaffolding with huge speakers and light system on it. 
So they start the show. The very first person to come out and start the show was a folk performer. His name is Richie Havens. And Richie Havens started with an acoustic guitar and back up a guy and back up him on bongos. And he came out and began to sing. And the first thing that you notice is I can hear every fret of this guy's guitar. I can hear every slide of this guy's bongo. And there's 600,000 people here. And he starts by singing the song Freedom. Turn the guitar up, Mike, please. Guitar, Mike. like just every everybody that was there at the beginning those that missed that song at the beginning almost missed the semi-spiritual aspect of the whole thing so wow. richie haven's song starting off freedom was probably the most dynamic part of the whole thing uh however some of the other notable acts were the who and santana and oh, yeah. uh, one of my favorites uh, of of that era was 10 years after it was a uh, a British band that not too many people know about. Girls, mention to Kevin, what are some of the things that you look up and listen to? Like on YouTube, you watch the footage. What are some of your favorites? Well, actually, yeah, Freedom by Richie Havens was one of my favorites to watch. But also Soul Sacrifice by Santana is one of the, like, the ones that we, yeah. it's our go-to. interesting before Woodstock I actually saw Santana at a small club called the Boston Tea Party oh, wow. the, the unique thing about uh, that place was there's only maybe uh, 600 800 capacities very small and Santana was the first uh, jazz like soul like salsa like group that I saw that had um, multiple percussion they had two drummers and, uh, and a lot of times they had two drummers and another percussionist that did bongos and chimes and other types of percussion. So they had this syncopated rhythmic uh, style uh, overlaid with a, a layer of uh, Carlos Santana's guitar. And the guy, uh, 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 Greg uh, Rowley, who 
played uh, Hammond B3 with the Santana, later became uh, one of the instrumental founders of Journey. Journey, of yeah, Journey. You told me yeah. His wow. Journey. So yeah, I, I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed Santana immensely. And one of the most amazing things we we're in a digital age now. We could we think we have all kinds of technology, but the technology that was done in the middle of a field with six hundred thousand people, with all the noise and everything else of all those people, to be able to hear all that that music like clearly, it wasn't fudged up. If you watch the movie Woodstock. When you when they show you some clips, there, those things are, are pretty pretty great live music clips. Kevin, I'm gonna go there. You just mentioned the semi spiritual aspect of Woodstock. What was it that you were sensing there spiritually at that time? Well, the sense that everybody was coming to a, it was billed as an arts and music fair, and myself and my friend bought tickets for him and his him is his girlfriend and myself and my girlfriend and we actually bought tickets and had every intention we we're planning on going and um my i was working for a large uh, electronics firm right across from mit in boston during the time and i had to tell my boss that i was going to be taking some days off kind of uh, and i wasn't sure when i was coming back <laughs> and he was like, "What?" And and the uh, the other people ratted on me in the place. They said, "He's a you know he's a hippie. Look at him. He's got long hair and a beard. He's going to that Woodstock thing." Yeah. And so I feel I was, a cold coming on. Yeah. So sure enough, I said, "Oh yeah, okay. Well, that's where I'm going. I'm going to Woodstock. You're going to that?" I go, "Yeah, we got tickets." And and so uh, as you approached, as I was saying before, as you approached this venue, you couldn't get anywhere within five miles we we were there early and we were five miles away so we had a hitch ride on sitting on the back of somebody's car and people are uh, high-fiving and and passing you a joint and all this stuff people are just there was a, a great deal of camaraderie and there was a great deal of cross play between people people were not ashamed people were not hiding anything the even the police that were there they saw people smoking pot and everything. They didn't. They didn't care. They they saw what they saw was happy people uh, in some kind of a, a state of well-being, actually, and wanting to come and ex and have an experience of freedom. Well, there's obviously a lot of bands that we uh, love, and um, I think Credence Clearwater Revival was one of like the biggest like one of the best performances that we've seen in video. We're just wondering if you got to see them because we know they kind of performed at an unusual time really late. Credence was, um, that was uh, my first introduction to a, like a Southern rock style where unfortunately Tom Fogarty, uh, I think got very ill, but Tom and John Fogarty had excellent, what we would call back then a tandem guitar type of style where they'd play off each other. Their rhythm was just electric. I mean, the, the other cool thing about it at Woodstock is it was um, very spontaneous. The bands would make people stand up and dance. They would, you know, like I remember during Credence, people would first start listening and then all of a sudden, whoa, man, this is awesome, you know, stand up and start dancing. And there was, a lot, like I say, there was a lot of interplay we saw people next to us, you know, that were a group of people 
and they they had wine and they had pot and they had some they had some uh, some stuff to eat and then as we turned around we say okay now uh, I have to uh, use the restroom and you turn around and you go the restroom <laughs> uh, where's the restroom <laughs> All I see, as far as I can see, is people. And there's restrooms up on the hill, porta potties, you know. So when you when you uh, decided that it was time that you really needed to use the restroom, you went on an excursion. <laughs> you were off, and you stopped, and you saw different people, and they'd call you over, "Hey, gay man, come on over here." And, and uh, I, I had long uh, bell-bottom pants, and I think I had a ruffled shirt on. I used to dress really like kind of like an English rocker during that time. So people would be attracted. They'd say, hey, man, come on over here. Sit down have sit down with us, you know. And you'd, uh, you'd, you'd have a definite excursion, even to the point of seeing things that you'd say, what? <laughs> there was a group of guys probably in their mid-20s that we saw on a blanket and there was maybe three or four of them and in the middle of this sea of music and people and partying and fun and freedom and all that they were free enough to play army with army men (laughs) we we stopped and we went uh Okay. <laughs> hey, what are you guys on? <laughs> Army. <laughs> oh yeah, man. And I, I just we stopped only briefly, at, and then we kind of like didn't want to go, <laughs> didn't want to go there, you know. Kind of like, okay, well, have fun playing Army at Woodstock, and <laughs> and, uh, and then there was a, another um, moment where we saw the sky walking totally naked with a sheep and he's got the sheep and he's got the sign the sign says the killing of animals has led to the killing of men and it's just striking just one of those things like you talk about spiritual there's kind of a, a spiritual aspect to that people were kind of making statements in a artful way I, I don't know how, how else to say it there was some there was some spiritual and freedom statements made in an artful way in that and that, so, like I say, when when, you, when it was time to use the restroom, you went on an excursion. You saw all different types of people. Like we, even on the way, when I was talking earlier, we we saw on the way people from Canada, people from all all different places of, of the United States. There's people from all over the place there. This is an interesting question. What kind of food did you guys eat there? Food? Yeah. Oh, uh, I had my first non meat Whoa. burger made from uh soybean Whoa. yeah because they did have some until until the food ran out i mean think about it Six hundred thousand people they were not yeah. prepared at all it was like ran out the first day you know every after that it was there was no food so the first day yeah i had a, a soybean burger and they had uh, it, it was it was think about it that's a lot of people they had, they would, and if you watch the movie Woodstock, you'll hear them talk about it. They would announce, if you are, are out there and you're taking 
uh, such and such. It's marked with a, it has a blue apron on the, on the package. Do not take it. We have people in the medical tent who are getting sick. Hey, everybody, pay attention. We just had our first birth. Uh, so-and-so Maggie had her <laughs> daughter, you know, Anne-Marie just got born today. And right here in Woodstock, we have a city here. And the whole place would go, <laughs> So it was uh, experience after experience. And um, uh, I, I remember I, I had a wineskin. I had a, a, a wineskin that had had my wine in it, and I had another uh, little pouch that had a water pipe in it. So we were equipped there, and um, even though we got the munchies, there wasn't much to do about it. You know? <laughs> hey, that sheep, you could probably track it down. Forget soy. <laughs> Glenn and I are crying over here. Not a soy burger. Not a soy the burger sheep no. is kind of looking <laughs> good, though. Track that sheep down. <laughs> That is awesome. Allie, you got anything? Did you stay for all three days? Uh, two. We left We, we left uh, before the rain came because we could tell it was going to be, like, unbelievable. Because, like I say, we, uh, we parked probably five miles from the gate. And we stayed in a tent behind a church. And, frankly, that night, we didn't even get a chance to really set up the tent properly. It was kind of like... We just crawled in, all four of us, in underneath the tent that was just partially set up. We weren't prepared for rain. We had no ditch around the tent or anything. And it was, at that point, it was seemingly becoming more of a free-for-all and because of there's just so many people. So, we yeah, we, we booked out uh, the second day toward the end of the day. And, and uh, it was so funny because I had a... Uh, I was doing pretty good during that time. I was well employed, and I had a, a brand new uh, Austin America, which is kind of a, a British square boxy looking car. It had uh, it was really different, but but that car n- never really was the same after Woodstock. Much like everybody else that went to Woodstock, it would like change the car. The car was like it was overheating. And the back shocks had blown out. I mean, all kinds of stuff happened to that car. And it was a brand new car. I mean, it's just like totally not, not anymore. Not can anymore. you imagine? Can you imagine coming out of there trying to find your car? Oh yeah. What was that like? Well, just uh, the, trying to find out where the only what, the only reason why we could find out where we even were, and let alone the car, was the car was parked next to the tent. The tent was behind a church, and in Bethel, New York. There's only a few churches, and um, there's, I think it probably was um, a Protestant church because it, it wasn't a Catholic church. I remember it was like a white church with a regular steeple, so we could find where we, where we were, you know, next to the graveyard behind the church. <laughs> Take a lift at the sheep and look for the... Uh... Look for the steeple. <laughs> earlier, earlier, though, you were, you were talking, uh, alluded to some um, psychedelic observations and uh, you uh, you go from a euphoria to a depressive state. Well, I can tell you that during Woodstock and during any of my psychedelic experiences that I went to, uh, I used to frequent a place called that very thing, the psychedelic supermarket. And they had strobe lights that would make you dizzy. You know, airport strobe lights will actually can can cause you to become a seizure. A seizure. 
And uh, I went to places like that. But it, and during the, any of that time, I never went to the depressive part of psychedelia. It was always like fun and joyful. Interesting. That's very interesting you say that because I think, Dan, you probably feel the same way that I do, that when we do one of these podcasts, there's a euphoria. Yeah, every time. Every time that we do this. I think a, it's your coffee, but. <laughs> there's a euphoria before we do it. There's a euphoria while we're doing it. And then even there's the buzz after doing it. Because what happens is we're stepping outside of ourselves in, in what we're doing. Right. And then also when we do it, we've talked about this, Dan, that this room becomes completely different when we bring guests in, when we have guests on the show. It becomes a whole different atmosphere. And the Lord really does touch down in here. We're moving in the giftings that God put into us. And then a couple days or maybe a day afterwards, then you have to fight through your mind. The euphoria kind of wears off and you have to fight through that depression. And I think that happens for a lot of people when they step into the presence in the Lord, maybe in a place where there's worship going on and it's intense worship. We've been in, in those situations mm -hmm. as well, where there's the euphoria that's there and then you step out and you're back into, back into reality is really what it comes down to. And, Reality is not a lot of fun in a lot of situations. Absolutely. And for the people listening to us, if you think, what are these guys doing? They're trying to spiritualize a bunch know. of what yeah, are we doing? A bunch of hippies getting together celebrating immorality or doing what and drug abuse or whatever. You, you gotta listen to us. There is if you look at kind of um Glenova and I and Kevin for that matter, have been in a situation where it was all about polishing the outside of the cup, religiously, morally, every way you could. You can't listen to this. You can't drink that. You can't do anything, right? At a point, you start eclipsing the natural desire to live, to express, to see the, the wonder, the, the mystery of who is God and what is life all about. And when I look at Woodstock, you look at the opposite. You can take either too far. But when I look at Woodstock, the parts of it that I do find inspiring are the fact that people stopped and they rejected possibly what the older generation had offered them, which was more stoicism. It was more sense of duty. It was more a sense of rigid moralizing. It was, um, leave it to beaver, leave it to beaver. And they were rejecting that because they saw behind that y'all saw racism going on. You saw, um, sending young mostly poor men out to die in some jungle somewhere without choice. You saw all this stuff that didn't seem righteous. So y'all said, you know what? We're going to live while we still can, and we're going to question these things. There is something. Now, I'm leaning utopian, but it is something in us that wants to enjoy. We want to have a sense of community. We want to love. We want peace. All those things, okay? Even though we're fallen, and we have a penchant for war, we have a penchant for arguing, we have a penchant for selfishness and stealing and breaking the Ten Commandments. Nobody's mm -hmm. got to wind us up to do it, right? But even with that, when you see people almost like children that are saying, we, we want to live, we want, and, and there's something. Girls, what do y'all find attractive? Why are you fascinated by, by what happened so many years ago? What I find most appealing about like this whole idea of Woodstock is that like it's just this whole like idea of like the freedom and like the release of anything like being able to do things because of the freedom to do it not asking why not like following social constructs and stuff just being able to release and like I don't know just 
enjoy the freedom of being able to do something just because you're being able to do it and like yeah and sharing it with other people. and sharing it with other and expressing yourself through the music and the bonds that you make and yeah. just I don't know I guess overall I'd say the freedom of it Kevin along those lines let me ask you this when I think about what's going on now it's obviously a different generation and according to pendulum we're in a we cycle a civic cycle it seems to me from what I gleaned from you talking about it, what I've watched on YouTube and in uh, documentaries and so forth, that it was cool to be you like individualism was cool. So when y'all got together and we're all expressing yourselves independently, there was kind of a sweet fellowship with a bunch of people that were like, that's cool. That's cool. You're okay. I'm okay. Everybody's cool. It's cool to be yourself. And hey, look at all of us. We're individuals, so we're enjoying a corporate individualism. And I contrast that with today that I believe the current generation is high pressure to conform. And yes. so, girls, I want your opinion on that, but I want to ask Kevin first. Do you see that difference between the generations? What was it like then as opposed to now in your estimation? The notable thing was that like, if, if people dressed as a hippie, there wasn't like people want to compartmentalize that they want to say well they had beads and they had peace signs no that wasn't it at all um my jeans were all full of patches that were sewn on by my girlfriend it was her art on my jeans it wasn't something i went down to walmart and purchased it was like something unique and i was a unique person because i was handicapped i was unique and I dressed a certain way, others dressed a certain way, and there was a certain uniqueness of expression there. There wasn't, like you say, a conformity. It was much more free. And even before Woodstock, we had some form of conformity back in the 60s when I was in uh, junior high school, high school. Uh, we had three different types uh, of people. We had the rats, which were kind of slick back greaser style. That was a style called rat. And then there was the college, which were uh, like Beach Boys style with, uh, you know, blonde hair, or, or hair combed over to the side and uh, plaid shirt and um, penny loafers or whatever. And then there was the mod, which was an English rocker style. Well, my friend and I, we used to dress either or all three all three different ways in fact we used to take it one step further because we used to go to see a lot of soul bands we decided hey let's go down to the soul band haberdashery haberdashery is a men's store we get on the soul band haberdashery and buy some some pinstripe bell bottoms and uh and we'd walk in there and they go, man, what are you doing here say, hey, man, we love the way you dress <laughs> that's freedom <laughs> and, and back then, like, there was much less conformity. So you sought after dressing a little different. Now, I remember I remember, I had a, a pair of pointed-toed, black, high, semi-high-heeled shoes. I used to go dancing at this place all the time. And I, I remember going to the store and getting white shoe polish, white coloring to recolor my shoes white. <laughs> And I had, and I had, I had to get a, I had to make sure I had a pink ruffled shirt to go with my white shoes. So I was all over the place, 
and I had a lot of fun doing it. And it was awesome. very individualistic, and and that's and that's kind of for for a handicapped person growing up trying to find their way in, in society and posture, you know, uh, dealing with uh, dating girls or not, uh, dancing or not, and all that kind of stuff. It was a way to um, express yourself and and not have to uh, have a bunch of baggage, you know, keeping you repressed. And girls, uh, can you contrast that as far as when your interest in music or clothing or art and you come into contact at school or, or what have you, what is your opinion of, of this generation as opposed to what Kevin just described? Yeah, um, it's way different now, I think. Um, like in the school situations, everyone has to be like the same and have a certain kind of brand certain shoes everyone has to have the same thing and if you dress differently or like try to express yourself through clothes or like the music you listen to you kind of become like a misfit or like an outsider and it's just kind of like people look down on you for trying to just be like yourself so you basically live on the island of misfit toys yeah. are you a water gun that shoots jelly or a or, or what, was what did the jack in the box what was, do what was help the jack in the box help us a Charlie in the box. A Charlie in the box. <laughs> no, Charlie in the a box. Charlie in the box. <laughs> My children, the misfits. No. No, that's that's great. Girls, any other interesting things that you want to find out from Kevin? I was wondering about, like, how everyone, they're always saying, like, uh, Woodstock was so peaceful. I was wondering if there was any kind of, like, violence that happened there that no one knows about. Violence? Yeah. Not, none. Well. Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, it was so, people were so friendly. It was almost, it would seem today, in today's world, to be unreal. It was like people you never knew, people you didn't never, ever have met before. And everybody was outgoing, friendly, and yeah, there was no, there wasn't even a hint of violence. That sounds like a, what Dan and I have experienced on the smaller scale to the shows that we go to. Yeah, where you would ex- we, where you would expect there to be violence, where you would expect there to be excessive drug use, where you'd ex- you know all sorts of sordid things, and that's what the world would want you to think is happening there for whatever reason. But when we go, it's the total opposite. We walk out with a whole bunch of different friends, uh, and it's like we connect. And what that connection point is for us is the music. Yeah, you would never guess. Heavy metal fans, you would think that would be the antithesis of anything like Woodstock. But in The Haven in Orlando, we saw individuality. We saw artists that were like, hey, we're not doing this for money We're because there's not a lot of money to be made in the United States yeah. with metal usually. But they were expressive. They were polite. They were supportive. And there was all this like camaraderie and fellowship. It was really, it was interesting, which I get how a certain type of art and back then, that expression of art attracted like personalities, most likely. I mean, there's, there's a lot of different dimensions to it. But there's something utopian about it. And if you take utopia too far, obviously, you're going to run into the law. Obviously, you're going to run into selfishness. And it's like, because it, it, political utopias, hey, we're going to have communism. We're going to chop up the czar and his family, throw them in a mine shaft, and everything's going to work out fine. It doesn't until the new tyrants are worse than the first, and it cycles and cycles. So there is something beautiful, utopian, and innocent about it, which we know is not the complete remedy. We need the gospel. We need the Lord, which is exciting because, Kevin, how, if any way, did Woodstock and seeing that and being a part of that, did that have anything 
in what eventually guided you or led you to the things of the Lord where you were where you were saved? Yes, actually, um, even when I look back on it now, going to turn seventy one, and uh, and I revisit that in my mind, my perception back then may have been, oh man, we wow, we get we got wasted, you know. It really wasn't. That was in itself an illusion because I can remember so much from what happened. The danger is when you wake up and you can't remember where you've been and what you've done. And um, it was so funny because as I, uh, the way I came to know the Lord was actually um, by a, a man who I'm still uh, friendly with and friendly with his son and helping minister to his son right now. He uh, came, a pastor uh, of a, a Baptist church, came to my home and led me to the Lord. And that man looked for all intents and purposes like like Mr. Rogers. And I was very arrogant in my resistance because I was a wild man, obviously. And um, I would resist him to the point where the Holy Spirit would just say to me, Kevin, shut up and listen to him. And that's why I heard the voice of God calling me to repentance because there was a man sitting across from me that cared for my soul. So did Woodstock have something to do with that? Absolutely, because you could, growing up in a world uh, of, in my world, when I was a boy, my world was a separated world of where my, my father was a, a severe alcoholic and I would go find him in the, in the weeds, in the, in the uh, cattails, bring him home, I'd bring him to various hospitals to try to get dried out, bring him actually to, uh, to a jail to try to get dried out, and um, so, so my perception of people loving was tainted somewhat. And the idea of going to seeing music and fellowshipping with people around a common denominator was very attractive. So um, once I found uh, that I needed Christ, then I began to see that that same type of love for music can also be expressed uh, in Christianity. Wow, that's awesome. That is awesome. One of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that while the 60s, a very turbulent time in, in our country, that was the time that you had a lot of people that are referred to sociologically and historically as the seekers, where they were seeking spirituality. And there was this, and I really appreciate this because the seekers, they saw religion as death and they saw spirituality as life. Now, there are some seekers that moved, they got saved and they became the Jesus people in the 60s. And that really affected Dan. I don't think you and I'd be sitting here doing this podcast this way if it weren't for the Jesus people. Yeah, probably Because not. they cast off the the cup of religion, the, the cup that they had to keep polishing that's associated with the 1950s. Have you ever noticed that when you walk into a very strict fundamentalist church, it's like walking back into the 1950s? Yes. It, it feels like it. And that's what they're holding on to. The, the haircuts, the music. The haircuts, the music. The attitudes, uh, the attitudes towards children, the attitudes towards women, uh, it's very archaic. And that was what was being cast off. But then uh, you also had seekers that went another route. And you, what happened is you had a resurgence of the gospel. There was revival during the 60s. And you had a lot of people getting saved. You had the rise of the charismatic movement, the belief in the practice of the use of, of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, you also had the other seekers. Of course, the devil came in and presented a whole bunch of different doors of spirituality. And you had the rise of Gnosticism, where the belief was that, well, Jesus, we are Jesus. 
and that our bodies are corrupt, but there's this pure spirit that Jesus came to help us release. Just a lot of false teaching that also affected the church that we'll talk about at another time. But you had this rise of this, and when you take a look at history, when there's been resurgences of the gospel, there's a couple things going on in the world. When you have revival breaking out, you have social turmoil going on, but you also have Gnosticism always rearing its ugly head of these other doors of spirituality that seem like the truth, they sound very much like the truth, but they're not. And so you had people going one of two ways in a lot of ways in the spirituality at the time. And it's interesting because when you look at what Paul was doing and a lot of the epistles that he wrote, writers of the New Testament, when they were spreading the gospel, they were dealing with the issue of Gnosticism as well. So you had this resurgence of the gospel and freedom, the rise of the Jesus people, and you had the rise of Gnosticism again at the same time. That's a good point. Gnosticism started rearing its ugly head, I mean, way early. And a lot of it came from a lot of the Greek teachers. And they. it was basically where it's as if God is against things that are in the human in the flesh god is against you enjoying a meal with your family it's it's um you can't eat in a way that wouldn't you would enjoy yourself um that there could be no physical pleasure in in matrimony that there could be it's like that that classic thinking of like a monk on yes. on tv of taking a vow of poverty a vow of chastity it's false doctrine mm-hmm. and so then we're meant to be able to enjoy life and not in some hedonistic sense of that being our purpose for living, but understanding that God gave great gifts and he gave us our lives and he gave us um, wine and song and each other and fellowship and, and different things to be able to be enjoyed in a proper balance. And fundamentalists have been invaded by a lot of Gnosticism for years and it just makes things difficult. So if you're going like Woodstock, that ungodly orgy of just horrible. <laughs> sure, there was a lot of extremity, extreme things that went on. There were a lot of different things. But it, in its expression, there's nothing wrong with, especially young people, wanting to live, wanting to feel, nothing. wanting to connect, wanting to question, wanting to revolt against norms that, that seem like they're completely hypocritical. There's so much there that is of God, and there's so much there that's going to be taken and used for for evil and for, for wrong. It, it gets out of that. So, girls, thank you all for being with us. Um, do you have any other points that you're dying to know? I know we haven't talked about Jimi Hendrix. We haven't talked about quite a few uh, different different things or different artists. Um, anything burning on you to bring up? Yeah, um, about Jimi Hendrix, uh, did you see him at Woodstock, and was that the first time you saw him? No, I actually saw him the very first time in a tent. Uh, The tent was called the Carousel Theater. It was actually a theater west of Boston. It was about a 2,000-capacity huge circus tent. It was the largest tent theater in North America at the time, and the we got tickets, went in, we went to the show. The theater in the round put the stage in the center, and there was people behind him and side of him, all around him. And while he may have, he, I know he played at Wembley Stadium in, in Britain and all that, and Isle of Wight and all that. Uh, while he may have played in an outdoor stage, I don't think he ever played in, an, in a tent, like a big circus tent. And he right away came out and was enjoying it. I know he probably did a rehearsal and, and got a chance to look at the venue up close before anybody even came. But when he came out on stage, it was like he he just he just looked to the right, looked to the left, smiled, 
and threw his hands up in the air, and then he immediately went over and started a feedback sequence in his amp, big, huge Marshall amps, and uh, dropped down to his knees and hit, hit his guitar body on the stage, wooden stage, and took some lighter fluid and a match and lit his, uh, his guitar right at the fretboard underneath the strings and began an un, unreal-sounding um, feedback sequence. And then left the guitar burning. At the, and the, by that time, it's thumping and humming, and the whole stage is like, you know, on fire in in sound. And he grabbed his his real his real guitar, if you will, his his Fender, famous white Fender, and launched into the uh, fantastic, most fantastic. I've never heard any any recording like uh, the one I heard live of Foxy Lady. original band, the Jimi Hendrix Experience. Uh, Mitch Mitchell was the bass player. Mitch Mitchell played rhythm. He played rhythm bass. He played bass like a rhythm guitar. And Clive Bunker on uh, on drums was was a fantastic uh, uh, jazz-type drummer. So seeing Jimi Hendrix in a tent, and the, by the way, he was the only performer. He played for two and a half hours straight, and, um, and a lot of people were just like, whoa, what did we just see? What we just saw was the Jimi Hendrix experience. So he did the guitar lighting in the tent yes. at that performance. Yes. Wow. I yes. had heard of that. And I may have even seen of a clip. Maybe he did it somewhere else as yeah. well. But Yeah, he's done it a few wow. other places. But in, in the tent and, and, and the way that the whole, the whole thing was portrayed was like, you know, you got to understand back then you were listening to music on a, a, maybe the, the best quality sound you had was in your car. Even the tinny speakers in the car were like the best. You might have had a transistor radio. You might have an FM radio receiver with some speakers. So you had a little bit of fidelity. But when you when you went to see some something like him live, and another another group I saw there at, at the same venue in the tent was the Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And when you saw groups like that live, the the dynamic of the performance was like euphoric. It took you to another level, didn't it? Right, right. Took you to another level. By the way, when you're talking earlier too about uh, about the uh, different types of people, we had an expression back there uh, that we had two types of people that we didn't want to be like. One was the beeries. We used to call them the beeries. Those were, you know, people that just got drunk, loaded, stumble, pass out, drunk. Well, what do I want to do that for? And two were the plastic people. Those are the people that were just plain fake. And that's most of, like like Dan was saying about most of the people in, in the world, 
uh, during the 60s, 70s that the uh, the hippie generation was rejecting was, uh, hey, I don't want to look like you. I don't want to be like you. I don't want to do what you do. I want to do something new. There's nothing wrong with that. I think I'm going to be a hippie. Yeah. <laughs> you know what we need to do, though, first, before we do become hippies, we, we need to go to the haberdash. I mean, no, I'm going to the soul. What was it? The soul <laughs> store. And give yeah, me my store, pinstripe man. bell bottoms. That's when they knew how to dress, baby. Yeah. That's, that's really good. That is so interesting. The squares versus the free spirits and the hippies. So to, answer, to fully answer your question, too, that was the first time I saw Jimi Hendrix. Later on, I saw Jimi Hendrix at um, Boston Square, Square Garden, which was uh, Boston garden which was basically the first indoor like type of like hockey rink kind of place and it of course he was also uh, great there i also saw the who there and saw the rolling stones there and saw i've seen just about every every of the great bands of the 70s you can imagine i I know somebody else you probably like is led zeppelin i saw led zeppelin at the boston tea party they played there for a week wow i went to i went to two of those shows and um they were, they were uh, very phenomenal. Never saw anybody play a guitar with a, with a bass bowstring. So it was cool. See, that's amazing. All these groups, they shook the world. Mm-hmm. Whatever dynamic, whatever God was doing, whatever was going on in the earth, whatever. The United States is kind of like a cauldron. I guess our, our, oh, yeah. the melting pot, the racial tensions, the, um, the mixture of especially black and white cultures and what came out of that. Um, We've mentioned a couple of times the book Pendulum, and according to Pendulum, do y'all know what year it is? It's uh, things repeat themselves. There's nothing new over the sun. So the general gist of the way things were, we're uh, at the beginnings of 1939, according to the Pendulum. And so if you look at the literature, you look at the psyche, you look at the way things were. Things were kind of uh, a lot of bad stuff broke out in 1939. So pray for the future. But it was kind of witch hunty, mm-hmm. the opposite of individual celebration and expression. There were a lot of things that were the opposite of Woodstock. So we're like at the polar opposite of Woodstock in our culture right now. And different people like uh, girls, y'all are both musicians and you you think differently and you you celebrate individual expression and, and art, artistic um, expression. Right now, we're in the middle of kind of conformity, uh, reject the phony, reject the idealistic, celebrate truth, warts and all. And there's some good things about that, but it always gets taken too far. So for our listeners, that book Pendulum is fascinating. Glenn, I think I've read it six times and I don't quite get all of it. That's how dense I am. But I like what I'm hearing. And you see that all the way back, generation to generation to generation, it's kind of like left brain, right brain, like each person has it's almost like society and culture oscillates between the two halves of the brain being more dominant as a culture. And that oscillation and the patterns that they talk about in that book, we always talk about it, that history repeats itself. Yes. And it's really kind of sad because as we were talking to our friends in Italy a couple of weeks ago, people just want to throw out history completely. Right. Because of the bad stuff that's in it. But we have to retain our history. We have to understand our history. And that's kind of why we have Kevin here with us today, because this is a time capsule that's being made. Yeah, he was there. He was there. That was 50. That was a half a century ago that, that Woodstock occurred. But people want to throw that out. But in order to understand society, to understand people, to understand life in general, you have to understand those patterns. And 
if you look in the book of Ecclesiastes, it talks about everything runs in a circuit. And that's a cycle. Everything is cyclical. And that's because we're limited human beings in our flesh and in our minds. We're limited. So the only thing that we can do is oscillate in cycles because of our limitations. Well, and I think even, Kevin, what you were saying, that it sounded like God used a square, or what was the word you used? A plastic? <laughs> Somebody that had that appearance, he helped use that in bringing you to the Lord. Right. Okay, And you were right. open enough to listen to this square, non-hippie, and it's kind of a beautiful thing because I think about people that I know. I know people that look really, really scary that love God and love other people like crazy. And they may have tattoos and earrings and strange places and all sorts of things. They're beautiful people that you know that the Holy Ghost is in them and on them, right? And then I also know people that look like 1950, the hair, the dress, the everything that they do looks like 1950. There's clean cut. They wouldn't dare, you know, it, all of us, we could go out and have a beer, right? They could look like that, but yet they are so full of the Holy Ghost. And I think that's important to see the balance between that you can't judge. You can't just sit there. I guarantee you, if you look at who went out to see John the Baptist, it probably looked more like Woodstock than it did like um, going to the opera. I guarantee you it was different. And the people, uh, most likely there were Roman soldiers. There were um, harlots and mafioso tax collectors. And there were all these different people that were hungry. And they went out there. That was during a wee cycle, yeah, by the way. And they were seekers. And they were seekers. And there was something that was going on. And we know the scripture says that nobody seeks God, but you still have this appetite for what you don't know. And then God draws you. And it, that's a seeker, like in that sense. But it's like, uh, it's just kind of imagine. I think of people going out into the desert for something. Something was going on. There was a thirst. And I believe God is the author of that thirst. You know, and, and we, we keep coming back to that. The muse or him, him that made us, Right. There's nothing, you know, a pattern that I see, and Kevin, maybe you can share some, some, your aspect on this. When I see that people have even that have dabbled into psychedelic, the realm, either by drugs or either whatever, they always seem very open to be theists. I don't know that many people that had the hunger to dabble into the psychedelic and say, oh, there is no God. I, I, you know, when these people are like evangelical atheists, and the real downers, no, it's all nihilism. There is no hope. There is no God. There is nothing. It's all an accident. Oh, look at that beautiful sunset. It's nothing more than random swirlings. And they take the romance and the poetry and the design out of everything. And it's really disingenuous and usually bitter, okay? But there's something anti-psychedelic about it, that they're not even open that their sensory perception could be expanded by the Spirit of God or by a near-death experience or by... Um, the the touch of a loved one, or, or they could have something. It's all to them, just plumbing and DNA and random swirlings, and it, it seems like the anti-Woodstock to me. I don't know where I'm going with that, but have you seen that pattern? Um, that people tend to be more open to the spiritual if they are psychedelic? Or I'll just tell you a little piece of trivia I just learned about a year ago. The uh, You talked to me earlier, I asked the question about security. Uh, was there any violence? There was no violence there. The security was done by, uh, was managed by a gentleman called Wavy Gravy. That sounds groovy. Okay, now that sounds groovy as all get out. Well, now in his 70s, 
Wavy Gravy has a foundation to help people who are blind get uh, cataract and other types of laser surgery that cannot afford it. Wow. That's what he does. Interesting. That's Wavy Gravy. The guy that did the security at Woodstock had no, probably had no clue what he was doing, but wanted to help people not to get in trouble. Now, what's he doing? Help people to see. Something that I did not realize when I was prepping for this show, something that I learned, Kevin, and maybe you can speak this to this a little bit more. During the 60s, music was a big thing. I knew that. Yes. I did not know, and I don't know if you came across this, that a lot of times the musicians during that era, people referred to them as the prophets. Did you ever hear that? Oh, yes. Can you explain that? Um, they had, uh, they were visionaries they could express an ideal of life uh, whether it was with uh, the lady of your dreams or the lifestyle or of a a wholesome party they could express that by uh, and give you a picture in your mind of what that was like and so they were they were prophetic in some of the ways they produced things and in the 70s you had uh, the who which uh, portrayed a few different rock operas that tended to be prophetic and showing how young a a young man could become something even though he was afflicted or a young man could be uh, damaged because he decided to enter into a wasteland of drugs and alcohol abuse. And I found that fascinating and I love the way that you expound upon that because that's things that I, I did not know and I didn't even think about. For those that are our listeners, they're like, oh my goodness, they're equating secular musicians from the 60s and the 70s to prophets. Well, we have to remember that First of all, the gifts are without repentance. If you've got the gift of prophecy and the gift to operate the prophetic, that's going to happen whether or not you're saved because that gift is without repentance. But the other thing is that if you look at Scripture, most of the prophets were also musicians. Yeah. yeah. So there's a tie-in, and Martin Luther even stated it. It's interesting how this is not quoted from Martin Luther a lot, that music is the portal to the prophetic. Interesting. Yeah, I, I think that's very scriptural. That's fascinating. It's just an expression of humanity. People want to know. We wake up, we have consciousness, we look around at the world around us. It is a kaleidoscope. Our memories are a kaleidoscope. You're sitting there, your first memories, maybe you're with your mom, maybe you get licked in the face by a puppy dog, and and you start to try to figure out where am I? What is this place? How long does this last? Ouch, that hurts. You know, you just start dealing with these fundamental facets of life to be able to make sense of it all. And then you start, hopefully, if you have access to the word or you know about the things of God, you have this fear of death, these, these things, it's all psychedelic in a way. It's, it's expanding that sensory perception either towards things that could be despair or things that could be euphoric and finding the reality that's in between the two. And you could get lost on either side of that. And, but it's, it's just beautiful in the way that God loves mankind, womankind, and he is drawing them to a deeper perception and understanding of who God is. And I believe that is in the form of Jesus. This is the largest group of people ever assembled in one place. The important thing that you've proven to the world is that a half a million kids 
And I call you kids because I have children older than you are. A half a million young people can get together and have three days of fun and music and have nothing but fun and music. And I God bless you for it.